Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The far right takes over protests calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and then an end to anti-Semitism in France. Iceland gets ready for a volcanic eruption, and we hear a motor neurone disease sufferer speak in his own voice three years after losing it. I'm Jenny Barsby, and The World in 10 brings you the big stories of the day explained and analysed by The Times of London. There were ugly scenes on the streets of London yesterday. What you're hearing are the sounds of far-right protesters clashing with the police. This happened just around the corner from Armistice Day commemorations, which these protesters claim they were there to protect from pro-Palestinian demonstrators. Now, the timing of their demonstration, which did fall on Armistice Day, has been on the front page of every newspaper for most of last week. Disrespectful was the watchword. It's ended with calls for the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, to be sacked after she wrote an article criticising the head of London's police force for allowing it to go ahead in the first place. 300,000 people marched in the end, calling for a ceasefire in the Middle East. And this has been reflected across Europe. From Washington to Milan, as you can hear, tens of thousands marched last week calling for a ceasefire. In Bucharest, hundreds gathered, many waving Palestinian flags and chanting, save the children from Gaza. But today, tens of thousands of people are expected to join a march in Paris to protest against anti-Semitism, which has seen a surge since the October the 7th Hamas terror attacks in Israel. It's been dubbed the Great Civic March, but the far right is rearing its head again here, this time in the guise of Marine Le Pen, head of the National Rally Party, not known for its Jewish sympathies. So why is she marching? The Times correspondent in Paris, Adam Sage, can tell us. She would say she wants to do that because the march is for all Republican Mm. French Republican forces, people who believe in the French Republican values. She would say she does believe in the French Republican values and therefore has every reason to be on this march. It's causing a lot of discord and problem because of her party's roots. Her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the, the party's founder, um, he, he 
have been convicted on multiple occasions of, of anti-Semitic words. So the presence of the party on, on this march is, is causing a, a lot of concern and debate. For her, it's clearly also an opportunistic chance to put that toxic anti-Semitic past of her party behind her. But with more than 3,000 police and gendarmes deployed in the French capital, it would appear that she may not find that as easy as she thinks. Let me take you back to last summer, when President Joe Biden signed into law one of the most significant pieces of gun legislation in 30 years, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Now, the law closed gun loopholes and expanded vital mental health services and is in part down to the work of the Violence Project, which created the first extensive database of mass shootings and shooter profiles. In today's Sunday Times magazine, Alex Miller talks to the founders of the project, psychologist Gillian Peterson and sociologist James Densley, who've studied cases stretching back to 1966. To build a detailed profile, though, the team knew they had to interview maths tutors. But finding a surviving one is difficult. Of the potential 150 shooters they could profile, only 30 are still alive. Eventually, they found Jeremy, that's not his real name, who told them about his life. Through these interviews, the Violence Project found that there were four key characteristics that Jeremy shares with other mass shooters, as Alex explains. The first is that he suffered trauma from a young age. He was in an abusive family. Secondly, that there was a, a period of crisis in the time leading up to the shooting. So with most shooters, there's been a sort of snap moment in the days, weeks or months leading up to it. It's normally something that other people notice. Thirdly, he had been searching for some, what they call social proof. What they mean by that is basically uh, people being interested in examples of previous shooting. And the fourth point that most match shooters all have in common, very obviously, is access to firearms. The Violence Project now hopes an effective triage could be set up to counter each of the four characteristics. Basically what Densley and Peterson have done is they've taken these four points, trauma, crisis, social proof, access to firearms, and tried to work out effectively a kind of method of triage across these, uh, these points. You know, things that we can do as individuals, things that institutions can do and things that we can do or America can do as a society in order to kind of treat these symptoms. But those on the violence project are not naive. I know it's guns, James Densley tells Alex. America has no monopoly on pain and trauma, but the access to firearms, the fourth characteristic, that's the hardest one to tackle. to Iceland, where a state of emergency has been declared over fears of a major volcanic eruption which could take place within hours. It's after a series of earthquakes that shook the southwest of the country and could be felt in the capital, Reykjavik. Now, since October the 25th, Iceland has experienced heightened seismic activity around Mount Torbjörn, with more than 2,300 quakes recorded. Vadir Renison is the head of Iceland's Civil Protection and Emergency Management at the National Commissioner of Police and told us he expects an eruption imminently. 
the magma is, is close to the surface, it's within hundreds of meters from the surface, which means that we are not going to see any significant signs from now on until the eruption starts. So it, it could be within hours, but mo most likely scenario, it will be on land and, uh, and, the, and the volcano eruption would produce a lot of lava. That's what we are looking at at the moment. We have evacuated the whole area as a little bit under 4,000 people. So at the moment, there is no people at risk. So that's, that's our first priority. But uh, there is a whole town very close to, to the area what we are expecting the eruption to come up. So that's the, the risk now is a uh, lot of properties and a lot of critical infrastructure. We have a power plant there and uh, we're looking at how we can save it in, in the case of an eruption. Of course, there are concerns about a repeat of 2010. I'm sure you can cast your minds back. There was a volcanic eruption on Iceland. It resulted in the largest closure of European airspace since the Second World War. But Vidir says this is a totally different scenario. There is a small risk of uh, disturbance in our, in our uh, international airport. But uh, as cloud as, as we saw in 2010 is, is not a scenario that we are looking at at this. After the, the eruption in 2010, there has been so much research and so much uh, work done on how to make sure that even in that kind of a scenario, the disturbance to the flight would not be at the same scale as then. So there is a lot of, lot of things being done, done for the last, last years in that. Okay, I want to play you something now, and then I have a question for you. I just want to say to the best fans in the world, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Your underlying support from all the rugby league family makes without doubt the greatest game in the world. I am determined to live a normal life, no matter how debilitating it is. I hope people find it inspirational, and that no matter how it affects me, I will never give in. So the question is, do you think what you've just heard was a real person or AI? Well, it's a bit of both, to be honest. The voice you're hearing belongs to Rob Burrows. He's a former England rugby league player who was diagnosed with motor neurone disease in 2019 and who hasn't been able to speak for three years now. Yet despite this, he became the first non-verbal person to present a podcast. His first interview was with footballer Wayne Rooney. So how was this all achieved? Well, Louise Eccles, the Times Consumer Affairs editor, drills down into the detail in her article. But it involves staff at the Edinburgh-based voice tech business Speak Unique, listening to hours of Rob's post-match interviews from his time as a rugby player, then sifting through all of that audio to come up with just one hour, just one hour, of clear recordings that they could use to create a realistic voice. I think sometimes we hear so much about the dangers of AI, we forget just how amazing the technology is and the good it can do. Rob's words say it all, really. It has, he said, freed a still sharp brain stuck inside a rusting cage. Thank you for your time today. The Top World Stories in 10 with The Times of London.